We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. This week we have the journalist Michelle Hussein and businesswoman Martha Lane Fox in conversation on careers, life and leadership. Michelle Hussein is one of the BBC's most respected journalists, presenting Radio 4's Today programme and with over 20 years of experience. And Martha Lane Fox co-founded LastMinute.com. She was the UK government's digital champion and became the youngest ever crossbench peer in the House of Lords and is currently a director of Twitter. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you do, please do rate and review Intelligence Squared on iTunes. Thank you. I actually... I actually did the most lastminute.com thing I could for Paul Farrow this evening, arriving about two minutes ago. So apologies for giving a near heart attack. Um, so obviously this isn't scary for me at all because no one here is very good at interviewing people. I'm sure you don't recognize anybody that's good at leading a conversation. So Michelle uh, emailed me last night to say, um, looking forward to seeing you, How very excited about the event, and to reveal to me that she does slightly dread public speaking. And I emailed back saying, well, I don't think that's fair because I slightly dread interviewing people who are brilliant at interviewing people. Um, So we're both feeling vulnerable right now and uh, perhaps that's one of the things that we can explore in our conversation. But Michelle, I wanted to ask you what you've been doing today and how you can actually still be awake. I woke up very early. I wake up about six and I heard you on the radio and I thought, that must be wrong. What have you been doing today? What have you been doing between now and then, then and now? um, Well... Uh, Martha, firstly, thank you so much for for doing this, um, and thank you all for coming. You know, especially given the rather adverse conditions outside. So, what have I been doing today? Actually, I'm I, I'm I did get up. My alarm went off at ten past three as normal, and I was in the office at four and on air at six. Um, but then I did, thankfully for everyone here, because this would be a very um, you know, rambling conversation. Otherwise, I did have a nice long nap in the afternoon after interviewing the Chancellor this morning. So, um, but I do... (laughs) He had a nap as well, I heard. All all in a day's work. But actually, um, there... I, I do have to be. I think if I'm fairly religious about one thing, it is my is it it is my diary because because I think you can't um, 
it's one of the things that I do get into in, in the skills is that um, I'm very conscious that, you know, I don't burn the candle at both ends. I'm really careful about pacing myself because I think you can just, things can so easily run away with you that I am really kept like for example I'm not going to be on air tomorrow morning the alarm is not going to go off at 10 past three or you know anything remotely like it so I am yeah I'm, I'm quite rigorous so about that side of things is this when write your brilliant book during your naps is this what you're telling us <laughs> well I, I you know I did I wrote this book over the last two years and I started writing it just before the referendum thinking um, oh it's a really busy news period at the moment but after the referendum everything will probably calm down and then <laughs> and then I'll get on with writing the book and of course events you know were otherwise so that part you know the time management side of it was really tricky but there were mornings where I, I didn't quite keep today program timings but I did get up early and write before my children got up for school and that kind of thing so you know it has been quite an intense intense couple of years and did you enjoy that process of writing I found I have so much more respect for writers um, than I did before because I think the really difficult thing about it is how isolating it is. You, there are no two ways about it. You have to lock yourself away or shut yourself away uh, from from the rest of your life. It's not going, you know, the words are not going to hit the page any other way. And I found that really difficult with a day job and um, children and all, you know, trying to keep some kind of normal life on the road. So yes, my, I, that must mean you really, really wanted to say what you were. Yes, say, I did. So and I guess, why? well, why did I write it? I think I, I think I wrote it because, as I'm sure is the case for sort of, you know, there are some women here of our generation, some younger, some older. But I think, I wonder if you feel the same. I feel for my generation that suddenly, in the last few years, you look around and think, why does the world, why does society, why does power not look more equal at this point or more representative at this point of our life? How has it happened that something that... that I left university never thinking I was going to have to really give a second thought to, has not changed more in this period of time. And that, um, so I guess the book was born out of a sense of frustration, out of a sense of why structural things and society just doesn't, you know, look better at this point in time in, in, in the beginning of the 21st century. But also... Um, Part of that was also a personal dimension that I also thought, okay, well, what am I, what am I going to give back or pass on? And for me, I, I came to the conclusion that the, the skills that were an intrinsic part of my professional life had a wider resonance and that I, I wanted to pass on the things that have, that have worked for me in broadcasting or helped me in broadcasting. And just beyond that, I guess, helped me um, perform at the, at, at the level and in the setting I do. Because I think that there is... Um, despite all the structural things we see around us, which I think we can talk, talk more about, there, there is a personal dimension that I think lots of us struggle with. It's the how, how to put yourself forward, how to present yourself using the, the terms of my own trade. And I felt that I had something to say on that front that, that drew, on my, drew on my work as a broadcaster. And you say it very well, and we will get more into some of the kind of specific advice and actions. But what strikes me reading the book and knowing you a bit is just you have had the most extraordinary expanse of experience. You know, you've been from refugee camps to practical war situations. You grew up in the Middle East. You were born in the UK. You have mixed race uh, family. You have done Olympic broadcasting. You now present the Today program. How do you make decisions about your working life? Well, when I when I look back now, I realise that there 
early on in my working life, actually a lot of decisions were not necessarily made for me, but a lot of great opportunities came my way without me really having to push for them. And that was fantastic at the time. I was in my 20s. I was a producer in the BBC's business unit. I'd done a very little bit of uh, on-camera work uh, with some reports for breakfast and some and some market wraps and one day my editor said um you know can I just have a word with you and I thought I've booked a taxi home at the wrong time or you know something like that and in fact what he was asking me was there's a hole in the presenting rotor next in the business presenting rotor you know do you want to have a go and I thought it was literally just a fill-in for that week but as it happens I never went um, back to producing after that so I had these extraordinary experiences where I went off to be a Washington correspondent at a really young age and I started presenting on BBC World and then I you know then in my 30s I hit that junction which you know a lot of people either probably have or or will which is trying to keep on the show on the road at the same time as you as as you have a young family and um and that was that was a phase where it wasn't at all clear that I was going to be able to get through to what I saw as the pinnacle of broadcasting so programs like Newsnight today the 10 o'clock news I just thought you know that's such a that's such a different ball game how can I how can I how can I possibly get there and you know, of course, there's an element of luck in how these things come your way. But it is also the case that there are things you can do that put you in a much better position. Um, that's what I think of as the practical side of things. Um, and I think looking back, I, I was trying to do as much as I could in terms of soaking up, you know, the, the extra thing, you know, using my weekends to, you know, stuff that's not great at the time. But I look back now and I can see that it, um, it stood me in, in good stead. Um, but it wasn't at all obvious in that, in, in that period that, you know, I, I certainly didn't feel and I wasn't, you know, destined to, to, to do what I'm, what I'm doing now. I think that's partly hard work, partly opportunity, and partly luck as well, I would say. Yeah, well, I would definitely echo that in my own experience. I think the bit I loved in your book is when you get the opportunity to work at the Olympics, presenting the Olympics, because you can kind of read the incredulity in your voice that this is something, and you think, is it an error? Do you think that they just haven't really appreciated that I'm a business presenter and I, or a news presenter, and now I actually have to learn about sport? But you went round and you shadowed loads and loads yes, of people. Yes, and, right? I, and, I, and I think, I, I guess, I've learned over the years that, you know, there is, a, that there is a mindset. With every new opportunity, there's a mindset that I need to put myself into. And the way that I have to, I have to sit down and do my homework. That doesn't mean that I then approach the job in the sort of bookish or studious kind of way. But I have to go through a certain process. And it's, you know, whether it's preparing for a big interview is obviously a much more, you know, truncated form of it. But... I've worked out now the preparation process that suits me and that allows me to perform, you know, hopefully to the very best of my ability. And I did a version of that before the Olympics where I'd been asked quite far ahead of time, you know, would you be interested in working on the Olympics? And obviously, you know, everyone is interested in working on the Olympics. So I said, yes, of course. But I sort of thought, well, I'll be doing some sort of news-related thing. And when it came to it, I actually was uh, asked, to be one of the main BBC One lineup, which was all fantastic sports broadcasters and me. So I thought, well, you know, okay, so, you know, you can watch Claire Balding, Gary Lineker, Sue Barker, Michelle Hussein. You know, there's someone who's not quite in the same, has got quite the same kind of background in that, in that, in that lineup. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, when I, 
lock myself away. I mean, it's a few days. But um, but I I did make, you know, loads of notes, prepare as much as I could. And I and I brought that notebook, my Olympics notebook, my Olympics Bible to the studio with me every day. And it it lived under the under the desk. It never came out, but I knew it was there. And it won, it was one of the things that I really felt um, made a difference was it to fun? me. It was, it was, well, it was absolutely amazing. And I remember the morning after the, after the opening ceremony, it was our first morning uh, on air with the programme, and I looked down into the Olympic Park from the porter cabins that the BBC studios were, uh, were in, and I looked down, I saw the Olympic Park, you know, filling up with, with people, families, and I just thought, I have this amazing vantage point on this extraordinary moment for our nation. And, um, you know, I felt incredibly privileged to be there, but I would have felt, I don't think I would have been able to enjoy it as much as I did had I not, you know, gone through the gone through the motions before. Well, I also did some prep last night uh, in my own inimitable style, and I did a Twitter poll about what people would like me to ask you this evening, and I had three options, so I'm going to ask you all of them. Although there was a clear winner, which is the last question. The first question was, what's John Humphreys like at 4 a.m.? <laughs> But I don't think very many people wanted to know the answer to that question. Do you want to know the answer I to do. that I've, question? I think I've seen him at 6am, which is quite early enough, thanks. You've seen him at 6? We well, booked I, you I, as a 6am guest. Maybe 6.15 when okay, I was desperate. <laughs> yes, now you're an 8.10, no, eight, eight, Martha. <laughs> this is the highest praise yes, that we I can give at the, at the Today programme. I'll take 7.40. <laughs> um, I... A great colleague at, at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Yeah, a great colleague and one that I've learned a lot from. The next uh, question that people wanted to answer was, what has been your best day at work? Oh, well, best day at work. I mean, it's in broad terms, it's obviously the day where you feel that you have got somewhere. You've got somewhere with, with a story. You've got, you know, you've an interviewee has said something that has been newsmaking, surprising, heartfelt. I'd... I, I find it very hard to choose one best day, but um, I'm going to say that... I'm going to put a massive caveat on this because it's a very difficult story. So, therefore, I can't see it as a best day in, in you know... But, but I think a day that meant a lot to me at work was, was where I... The morning... I the morning after the horrible school massacre happened in Pakistan and I was on a flight the day it happened and it was a mission to get there but we got there and and I went into the school as it was being opened for the first time I mean they'd they'd it had, it had been entirely sealed off by the army and um and I was one of the first people in with my uh, with my cameraman and we walked through and we just recorded one thing for television and, and radio and it was um it was a feat of being able to just walk out and think that this um, this was a story which was which had just shocked the world at that time. I mean, you know, more than a hundred children were were killed in that school. So it was one of those moments where I felt I'm doing this job for a reason. I'm able, you know, I'm able to shed light on something and and bring an a, a, an audience in the UK and indeed elsewhere to this to this place which they wouldn't have heard about, where something truly shocking has happened and it it's those kind of moments that that you do the job for that you feel yeah I'm doing this for a reason and the reason is is a day is a day like this yes that I would imagine lives with you pretty deeply and the final in my twitter poll actually that was the most popular question I've done it the wrong way around was um is there a dream interview you'd still love to do I mean you've interviewed so many people from I mean all the m's Malala Megan what other m's are left me what are, who else <laughs> I interviewed Martha for my book as uh, as well as otherwise, a dream interview. 
I think a dream interview, which I'm going to say this because it will never, it will never happen, but the Queen? Because, you know, here's someone who's so familiar to us, or at least we, we, you know, we think we, we think we know her, and yet she is, you know, absolutely unknown. We know very little about what she, what she thinks, and she, for obvious reasons, says very little. So it would be, uh, it would be the, the, the ultimate, I think. I'm sure that one of her aides is secretly listening to this, and that's going to be Thinking forthcoming. Thinking that will never happen. It's, becoming, it's forthcoming. Um, so I'd just like to move into more kind of practical and action stuff that you think people here might be interested to take away, and I'm so happy to see so many relatively young women in the audience as well. Um, when you reflect now on the book, are there things that people have said to you, that's the thing that have surprised you, that people have taken away, or bits of advice, because you've got so many very... You're, pretty pragmatic and quite directed, which is great. Uh, that's why it's well worth buying, um, because you don't often, you sometimes get sort of not a sense of what I can actually walk away and do. But have there been things that people have said you, that have surprised you that have been so resonant? The things that have meant the most to me is when people tell me that um, the skills has helped them with something in particular, you know, changing careers, uh, job interview coming up, or, you know, some big some big event. I think that's what's really meant the most to me because what I did want to, what what I really did want to distill was some of the how. Um, uh, because, for example, I remember early on in in my career, so about probably about thirteen, fourteen years ago, I asked a very senior executive in BBC News, you know, what does it take to present a program like Newsnight or Today? And she said, you need authority to present a program like that. And it made perfect sense to me, except I didn't know how you have authority. And, you know, I, I, this really puzzled me. And I went away and thought, well, what is this? Is it about being around the block for a certain length of time? Is this about, um, you know, I mean, I really didn't know how, how do you go about this? And, and so over time, I've, I've learned that at least to me, what it means is the the ability and the determination to demonstrate your knowledge. So not just to gather, not just to, to have the knowledge in the first place, but to be willing to throw it in, in a way that I think often we can be quite reticent about. Because, I mean, look at our, look at our, look at this country. We tend not to be into people who are massively showy and, you know, all the rest of it. And so I think we can often hold back in, in demonstrating our, our knowledge. And I think it's very hard to develop authority without being willing to do that because it's, you know, it, it has to be on show. People have to, we, we think a lot these days about how you have confidence, but in yourself. And of course, that's a really important thing to develop. And, but it's also, there are also the ways about how you how, other, how you encourage others to have confidence in your abilities. And I think for that, you have to, you have to make sure that you, you put your knowledge and your ability on show, you know, in, in the right, at least not to miss the opportunities to do that. So that, in the meetings... That really struck me as an entrepreneur because that you don't have anything else when you're trying to build something from scratch, right? You have to be the best in the room at the subject. That's true if you're trying to raise money or if you're trying to get people to come and work for you or then when you're trying to encourage those people who work for you to do the things that seem completely impossible because nobody's done them before. So I, I re- that really resonated with me because authority, I agree with you, is not only working hard, which I think often doesn't get said enough you know it's hard work you have to be good at your subject you have to know whatever it is you're doing I remember when we were starting lastminute.com Brent and I you know we became we knew nothing about travel and we learned every single thing we went to endless travel conferences got all the travel mags all you know as you would imagine 
doing to become an expert so that we could convince other people we knew of even a little bit of what we but needed to know. But in your case, it wasn't only travel. It was just the very idea of buying online, which yes. was so alien to everyone at that time. And I remember so well that the first two websites I ever used were Amazon and Last Minute. Yep. And, you know, it was it's such a fundamental part of i mean i remember so well the experience of being able to buy something online yeah, well, for the very for the, the very experience first time. of being able to buy something what actually happened is you would have hit a random bit of the screen then a fax would have gone to another machine which i probably would have taken out of the fax machine and faxed into another machine and then would have gone to a supplier that i would then have called to say did you get michelle's order wow so that's online <laughs> didn't look very much like buying online that, that was the challenge wow but when you but when you were doing that i mean did you you're having to make the case for something that people know nothing about and think is impossible and think will never catch on. Yes, absolutely. Did you believe all the time that it would, or did you have moments where you doubted it yourself? I didn't ever doubt that the internet wasn't going to be a thing. Um, I did, at moments, doubt that lastminute.com was going to be a thing, and I frequently doubted whether I was going to be able to do it. So there's a kind of hierarchy of stuff. Just listening to you say that, I, it makes me think about maybe the, the reason... Uh, um, one of our fundraising sessions didn't go so well was we went to a venture capitalist. There weren't very many venture capitalists in London who would give money to startups back in 1998. really was easy to forget now how few people were investing in this stuff. But we got one answer from one guy saying, yes, come in and meet us. And Brent and I prepped every single thing in the cash flow, every single travel margin, every single scenario of marketing, how we're going to expand internationally. I cannot tell you we prepped for ages and we've been ex-consultants so we're quite good at presenting and you know doing that thing between us. And this guy sat behind his massive mahogany desk in his huge office in Mayfair and he said, I have one question. And we were there kind of waiting, thinking, is it going to be about the flight margin? Is it going to be about the marketing budget? And he looked at Brent and he said, what happens if she gets pregnant? <laughs> but now hearing you say that, maybe it was just because he didn't know what any other questions to ask <laughs> because it was quite technical. Yeah, that was pretty bad. But, but you see, Martha, but this is what... This is what I think is still so shocking today, that yeah, even hit. now, if you look around in yeah. tech, I mean, there are... Okay, Natalie Massonet, but how many other female tech entrepreneurs can... I mean, I'm, you can name plenty, no, but how, no. many, how many could the rest of us name? No, it's, it is shocking, and the numbers are still shocking. I was with a young woman recently who, um, you know, try and help young women in tech because they face so many barriers, and yet we need them so desperately if the future's going to look anything like I want it to look like. And... Um, she was telling me that she'd done a presentation. This was this month, right? No, maybe last month. She had done a presentation this month in Mayfair, maybe very similar to the office that I'd done the presentation 20 years ago in. And the whole group of men in the room, BC firm, quite well respected. She'd sat down, and I'd helped with the presentation. It was good. And she sat down, and the only thing that they said to her, one of the men said, oh, you've got a really lovely sounding voice. <laughs> this is 2018, and... You write about voices in your book, and it really does yes. strike me as something very important. Yes, I, I do write about voice, but I write it really in a way to yes. ideally make people stop thinking about, yes. about voice, because I think that people often... Yes, yeah, so some of the skills I write about are directly relevant to my, to my work. So public speaking, body language, um, voice. But uh, I'm so struck the number of times people say, I worry about the way my voice sounds, you know, whatever they do for a living. And the vast majority of the time, there, it is absolutely not the thing that you should spend any time worrying about at all. Because um, really, it's, 
you know, the, the most effective speech is where the emphasis is in the right places. And it's, it's, it's not about the pitch of your voice or your accent. It's about how clearly you can, be, you can be understood. And the most effective presentations are where you believe in what you're saying, where you're not taking a script that someone else has, has written for you. But, but on this point about, um, about women in, in tech, I was very struck by something you told me for the, for the book, and I, and, and I thought it was such an important link to... Um, to gender pay and uh, the gender pay gaps of the future that if we don't have more women in stem subjects and going into industries like tech we will never ever close the gender pay gap because these are the high paying jobs of the future so there's a you know we're kind of making an assumption that more women are going to get promoted we're going to get better res- better representation at senior levels and things will even out over time but actually the the trajectory of women in stem it's is bad. the opposite it's really bad i mean I saw some work that McKinsey had done recently showing how long to parity in various different sectors of society, and it was politics and business and tech, STEM and tech, and uh, I think it was manufacturing as well that I looked at for selfish reasons. I was thinking, well, you know, how long till the Lords looks completely equal? Apparently it's going to be 74 years. And I thought, well, most of the Lords might still be alive by then. They seem to go on forever. That's not so bad. And I looked at business, and it was, I think, 34 years, and actually that felt, you know, terrible, but okay. And then I looked at tech, never Never, ever, because the trajectory is flat, if not backwards. And the reason it's partly backwards is because the industry has shifted now. So the skills and the pay and the jobs are going to be in the much more deeply technical, if you like, bits of it. So, you know, my world where e-commerce, you often get people moving from retail into e-commerce, where there were generally maybe more women. And then you had the whole social media influences. There's that big kind of revolution in terms of pay for some groups of women. And then you look at... Bitcoin and blockchain and cyber and AI, and we're going back to the beginning again, and that's pretty bad. So if anyone knows a young girl or is a young woman who is interested and has the aptitude for, you know, we, we've all got to do our utmost to, to encourage that. You don't have to be able to code to do this stuff. That's the point. You know, look at me. I'm a classical historian, and I've never written a line of code in my life. I used to keep a book of Java, which is a programming language, on my desk to scare the development team in case they thought I could de- develop code. Um, <laughs> It's actually quite a useful trick, just by the way. Keep a very, very scary-looking book on your desk. Um, But it really, really, really doesn't matter if you're not a technical person, as long as you have a curiosity about the world and building it and how the future is going to be. Although I think you're saying that it is going to be... You're going to need more to be the technical person now than in your time. Yes, but... uh, Sorry, all I mean by that is technical jobs can encompass quite expansive things. You could be a product designer, or you could be a designer, or you could be the kind of interface between the tech team and the... um, the rest of the business so yes we need the technical jobs but that shouldn't stop people feeling as though tech doesn't tech isn't just those technical jobs I guess um just coming to kind of what your three things that you go to as the most useful things that you want people to leave the auditorium thinking about are the three things that you'd like to pull out yes I well so I guess the three things I would say is um one is about building a a support network, actually, that works for you. And and I know, and I really dislike the word networking, but I think a lot of the things that we come up against in the workplace are the kinds of things where you need to find that trusted circle of people, you know, your peers, someone more senior, someone in a slightly different 
industry even, but your own so- circle of trust, the ones you can offload onto and say, this part I'm finding really difficult, or um, or what on earth should I do? What on earth should I do next? And um, the kinds of people you can really game different scenarios with. I mean, I, I look at what I do now and think I'm how I realize how much I've learned from working on a program that is co-presented because, uh, you know, when I started being a reporter, I'd never been a field producer, so I'd never really been out with a camera very much. And you suddenly realize you're out with a camera and you're thinking, how do other people do this? You know, I, I, I just don't know. Whereas now I feel, actually, when you work with someone you know, when, when you see, as I do almost every day, another presenter, what they ask for, how they manage their time, I, you know, soaking up all of that, what you see go well around you and what you see go not so well around you um, is, is really important. I mean, I, I, if you talk to sportsmen and coaches and people like that, often they say that when they are watching any kind of sport, something that's got nothing to do with them, they're often thinking, you know, what would they, what would they do? And how would they play that ball? How would they, um, you know, how, who would they substitute? They're sort of gaming things all the time, even when they're watching. And I think that's something we can all take, take something away from, that, you know, soak up what's going well and what's going not so well around you. Another one. Anything else? Um, yes, you, you, said, you, you said three. Um, I've yes, already answered said... the question. Yeah. <laughs> I think also... <laughs> um, Building a personal brand, I think, is, is really important. We have all the tools now that enable us to do that. But um, I think that you have to... What is it that you want to be known for? And is everything... I mean, you don't have to be totally, um, you know, on message the whole time. But really, your social media fields are a shop window for what you, for what you do. So keep them at least, you know, 80% of the time on message. Because I know lots of people who um, have basically got new jobs because of how they presented themselves on Twitter, how it alerted people to their work, how it, you know, just made them think that person looks sensible, interesting, knowledgeable, uh, provocative, whatever it is that they're, that they're going for. So use all, of, use all of those kinds of tools. And then I guess the third thing I would say is when it comes to the big moments, the job interviews, you know, maybe the media, uh, maybe the media interviews, all the appraisals, all those pay negotiation, all the moments that are important but that most of us dread – Keep your messages really simple. I think most of us overcomplicate things when we prepare for those moments ahead of time. Some of us dread them so much that we don't prepare for them properly. But with a little bit of thought, for example, you can work out ahead of time, what are the two or maximum three things I want this person to remember when I leave the room and bring them in no matter what. So, you know, you may be asked loads of questions in a job interview you weren't prepared for, but you can make sure that you've implanted in the other person's minds that you know you've done x great thing in the past you're going in y direction and you know something else that you really want them to remember so those are things that i think you can those the those sort of making the most of the big of the big moments i think that there are definitely ways that we can break down our messages in advance not overpack what we're going to say and then you know use those because there, there are times which are make or break which never going to you're going to have one chance to make your pitch you know, Absolutely right. And I remember my dad saying to me very unhelpfully uh, about everything generally, he said, remember Harold Macmillan who says that if you've made three points, you've made two too many. But I thought, yeah, that's probably quite good advice. I often think about that when I'm making speeches, that pretty much people aren't going to remember much except the one thing. So what is that one thing you want to convey? And that can be as true in a big audience like this yeah. as it's true in a, a work meeting. Or... That you've really boiled it down. One thing. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was being quite, you know, Type by saying, Harold Macmillan, times have moved on, possibly, possibly, possibly. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. Um, you talk a lot about your mum in the book. I was lucky enough to meet her at your book launch. She was brilliant. I was thinking, you know, it's a final section before we open up to questions. I like looking back to look forwards. Do you think that we have substantially moved on from where your mum's generation felt that they had opportunities or not? And do you feel optimistic about the direction we're going in? I think I, um, yes, I do feel optimistic about where we are right now because I think the last year and, you know, Me Too, gender pay reporting, equal pay has all been part of that, which all happened after I started writing the book. I think we are at a real, um, we are at a real moment now. I see, um, uh, you know, I see senior men who are at the hiring side, you know, there's all, all, there's such a wide consensus that we need better, better solutions for representation in the workplace and the advancement of, uh, of women in, in the workplace. So I think that's what's really unique about this moment, but I just hope it doesn't pass. I hope we do something, do something with it. Um, I guess the way I see it is that, um, you know, there, there are things we haven't structurally got right. There are things that society hasn't got right. There's plenty of evidence in ways that, um, 
we perceive women who are doing things that are comparable to, to men in a different way than we perceive the men doing those things. Um, and, and the third thing is, is the, personal, the personal dimension with the, the skills that I've talked about already. But yet, when I look at my mother's life, I realize that you know, for, for at least two generations, my family are from Pakistan. Um, you know, my grandmother went to university. Uh, my mother has two degrees. But the feeling that the, the, the sort of actually making a career and both being breadwinners is a, you know, it has really only happened with, with, in my family with, with my generation. And I think what I personally struggled with a bit when, um, when I first had children was just thinking... I had a stay-at-home mother. What, you know, my role model for being a working parent is 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 absent. At least a working uh, working mother, because we had my parents had a very traditional uh, marriage in that in that way, and that my father was the breadwinner, and my mother stayed at home with us until uh, until we were uh, in secondary school, and then she went back to university and retrained as a teacher. But so I, I think I definitely struggled with what is my you know w- what is my imprint? What am I aiming for here? And actually, she was the one who really liberated me because. She was the one who said to me, your life is so different from mine. You know, don't, don't worry about the fact that, you know, you might not be there when your children get home from school. It's, it's a different time. And I think that really freed me from having the expectations of, you know, my cultural background, my, you know, my faith, ed, anything like that, as well as, as well as where we are in society. So I think, yeah, I mean, I owe her so much. Yeah, my mother is also an extremely strong role model for me, and she went back to work about five or six and has always run her own businesses and done things with her best friend but uh it still feels different to her generation she's only 66 67 but they feel like there are substantially different ways that I see things now like she's still quite shocked that I want to travel about to boards around the world and travel so much but you know what about the little ones aren't they going to miss you I'm like they're two and a half they're not going to miss me anyway what about my partner why isn't he going to be there being so there's still I feel like things have shifted quite a lot between just that uh 20 year gap I often uh think back further back when I think about how to solve the problem of women in technology because of an amazing role model called Dame Stephanie Shirley. Uh, How many people in this room have heard of Stevie Shirley? Not enough. This room, you should all be on your feet cheering and whooping. She's a really extraordinary woman. She um, came here on the kinder transport in the late 30s and she started working in technology as it was then, as soon as she went into her working life. And then in the late 60s, she started a company all only employing women all working from home and all building software, as it was then, for government contracts. So these were really tough projects. Uh, I didn't know the only employing women part. That's the point, yeah. She had 3,000 women at one point, all working from home in the early 70s, right? And they were building the Polaris submarine software, the black box for Concorde, all of this stuff. She always says, excuse me for my language here, but she says it was the Equalities Act that fucked me up because I had to employ men. I couldn't only employ women. So she's quite funny about that. But I'm lucky enough to see her quite regularly, and she's an amazing woman and definitely part of the circle of trust of stuff. And she, I think she, her, she had a son who died from autism, and she's done massive philanthropy in her life. And I think she sort of not really looked at what was happening in the tech sector, and we've talked about it a lot. And she's just like, what the hell has happened? We were doing that in the early 70s. We had all this stuff going on, and now we've gone sort Downhill. of backwards. Yeah. So that's why I feel also not so optimistic about the future sometimes, because where are these big creative leaps going to come from to enable different ways of working, different sharing care, different, you know, just different structurally different things. And there are, I, you know, there are, some of these things are really big and really for, 
you know, for, for governments or at least big employers to think really hard about what, you know, truly flexible work really means and about the ways that I think that that key point which for most women comes in their 30s you know which you where where you think that it's so hard to keep the show on the road but actually that that really intense period does pass and does does change and if you can do more to either you know keep women in at that stage or to make it easier for them to leave and come back you'd go a huge way but also there are just things that You know, if you think about the nature of job advertisements, people who put job advertisements out that say travel 25% of the the time, you know, the kind of thing that puts off plenty of women and men. And if you ask executives who put those advertisements out, if you ask them, and how often do, you know, do people who who do those jobs actually spend away from home? A lot of the time, it's not it's not as much as 25%, but you've immediately put a barrier uh, for most people. I mean, imagine if the Today programme was a job that could only be done by someone yes. prepared to do it five days a week. I mean, you impossible. Know, yeah, definitely, yeah. I was struck, the 25% makes me think of a, um, a guy I was on a board of Marks & Spencer with who ran the National Grid, big engineering company, big challenge around diversity. As you can imagine, and one thing he said really struck me, he looked at every single aspect of how they employed people, from how they wrote the job adverts to how you've got your bonuses to how you've got childcare, maternity, everything. And what he really lighted upon as one of the defining reasons why women weren't succeeding in the organisation was the appraisal system. And it was this. It was that because they're an engineering company, they had quite hard targets. So you'd be set four targets. And men, on average, overestimated by 50% whether they had achieved a hard number target. And women underestimated by 50%. So you got 10, you got 10. And women would say, but I didn't quite get the 10 because I had that help from Beryl in whatever and this person. And you got the 10. And, and the that's very, why they weren't being promoted because the, they weren't being given the bonuses. The because because there's a very a brilliant book written by Iris Bonet called Diversity, What Works, where yes. she looks at the effect of, of, of exactly this. And she says, the trouble is, if you're a manager and you're, you have a, a male report and a female report and they come back, and you know they're both about a five, but the man comes back and says, you know, I'm a seven and she comes back and says, I'm a four. Even if you know that they were both the same, somewhere it just lodges in your mind, which is what is really dangerous about it. So, yeah. so if you get the 10, take the 10, please, women in the room. Um, I think we're going to open it up for some questions now. We have these two ladies at the front. Yes, perfect. Um, good evening. Question to both of you, um, considering your backgrounds. If you could wish one piece of legislation um, that would help women in the workplace, what would that be? Great. Can we going to take the one at the front as well? There's a lady here at the front with the black and white top on and the lady here. Um, I work in a business where the senior leadership team don't accept we've got a gender pay gap and aren't going to do anything about it. Do you think the same as in the BBC? Do you think they'll actually do something about it or do you think we're going to see more Carrie Graces come forward? Thanks for a great discussion. I just had a question. We focus a lot on achievements and success. But, um, Michelle, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about um, how you dealt with um, failures or setbacks in, in your career. Thank you. Good questions. Yes. Okay. Um, well, maybe I'll, I'll start just there. Yes, dealing with setbacks and failures. You know, the nature of my work is that everything I do is on public display. So the high points and the low points. And I, every day I will come off air and think, should have said that, could have said that, shouldn't have said that. You know, that that is the nature of how, uh, you know, I I think you can only get better if you are going to be quite rigorous with yourself. But, of course, the dangerous corollary to that is that you can work yourself up into the, uh, you know, in, into, 
into that sort of tailwind of just thinking, you know, I, how, how am I going to do a decent job the next day if you, if you dwell on these things too much? So um, I, again, I think going back to a sort of method of preparation, I've figured out that I do have a way where something, when something hasn't gone wrong, uh, where, where something has gone wrong on air, and I mean, you know, I've had the experience where I've had a very contentious interview and I've opened the newspapers the next morning and found, you know, two pages devoted to my inadequacies as a, as a broadcaster. So, you know, I'm very, I'm very conscious of that, uh, of that public spotlight. It goes, it goes with the job I do. But I've figured out the way that I, I sort of go through the process of thinking, okay, that didn't go as well as, I, as, as it did. Why didn't it? I'm going to think about it for a certain period of time, clock what I need to know from it, and move on. Because I just, you know, the biggest danger for me is losing my nerve and thinking the next time I'm faced with, you know, uh, an interview that, is, that has that sort of potential that I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to compromise my my ability to to rise up to it so um so i think there is something in that uh, in that method but certainly you know there were times when in broader terms uh you know i saw jobs go to other people which i thought i could have done and which i would have liked to do and you just have to keep the faith and i think ultimately if you are someone who is good at your job and who um you know who has that potential, I think ultimately you will find your own way. But there are just so many periods where it can feel very difficult to, to, to keep that. Um, on the, your point about the, about, the, about the BBC, actually the BBC's gender pay gap is pretty small. So the carry, so what happened to Carrie is about, is about equal pay and many other women at the BBC have been, have been up against that. I think there's no doubt, and this is true of, I suspect many employers, it's just that most are not subject to the same scrutiny as the BBC. I think that pay decisions um, over the years were made in a very subjective, in a very subjective way. And um, I really hope we're in an era where that cannot happen again, that there's a much wider awareness of, you know, unjustifiable pay gaps between men and women doing, doing comparable work. So I really hope we're in a new era on that. On the gender pay side of things, I think there's, although it's a much more crude measure, I think there's no doubt that it has focused companies' minds. A lot of companies have been really embarrassed about their gender pay gap figures. And, you know, some have, have, whether it's, I think EasyJet were actually doing this already before it became obvious that the lack of women pilots was, you know, as is the case with most airlines, were considerably skewing their, their figures. But there's a massive, you know, emphasis subsequently on we really need to find all the ways possible to encourage more women uh, to become pilots. So that, so I think that is, that's shone, that's shone a light as well. And then legislation. The one piece of legislation. Yeah. I think that I would legislate for that, that companies should be made to do something active about returnships and bringing women back into the workplace. Because I think it is really hard to... It's all very well to say, you know, even if you've been out of the workplace, you know, apply for, apply for jobs. But if your CV, if, you, if your CV actually, you look at it and you think, God, there's a 15-year gap where I have not been in work and that's going to count against me, you're probably right. It is going to, sadly, at the moment, count against you. But if we have a whole different um, spotlight on, you know, this this sort of lost potential of women who would like to come back or like to be full-time when they've been, when they've been part-time, um, I think we probably do need something from the government down that, um, that, that adds yeah, I the, take not a, just incentivise, but I take a bit more of a challenging view of this. Mm. I've been making a radio 
a world service program with Viglover called My Perfect Country. And we take policies from around the world that have been good and we assess them and we work out whether or not they should go into a, like a country if you're constructing it from scratch. And we did a program about Rwanda where I'm sure many of you here know where after the genocide, 50% of the decision makers had to be women, legislated to be women. So that was the smart part to my mind. It was about budgetary responsibility, actual you know, decision-making process. And that was true in government, civil service, across business and so on. And that was out of necessity. And I'm not sure if that's the right device, but I actually think we do need something that enormous and creative because I'm not sure that at the cultural pace we're moving, we're going to get to where I think we need to get to. Yeah. Let's start the campaign. Hi. Do you think women are diversity dimension? And if not, why do we keep framing them that way? Very good question. Diversity dimension. Hi. We've talked a lot about what women can do differently. But what do you think men could do differently to create the sort of world where women can achieve? Oh, nothing. (laughs) And then, yes, over there. Thank you. Oh, hi. My question relates to power structures because you both work in sectors where, there, where you encounter a lot of powerful people and entities. Have you ever been exposed to power like, sanctions or have you been directly subject to certain situations and where you had to stand up for yourself? Would you have any advice in that regard? Thank you. God, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you start. <laughs> um, so power, yes, absolutely. Um, Adverse power structures, the, the, the times when you have to absolutely stand your ground. I mean, some of that I do on air. A lot of that uh, I do on air where you've got to, um, yeah, you know, you've, you've got to hold your nerve. You've got to, you know, people are trying to, you know, the verbal equivalent of beat you around the head with, you know, their, uh, their version of the facts or, you know, what, what, whatever it is that, uh, that they're trying to put forward. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's a, that's a daily part, uh, daily part of my life. I mean, I, I think you just, um, you have to, you have to strike the balance between, you know, holding yourself to what, to what you know and sticking to that and just not being, you know, not being bullied away from it. Um, and also realizing when someone is saying something that, ab- that absolutely you, you know, you would be blinkered if you didn't, uh, if you didn't take it on board straight away. So I guess, um, some of that is also, or there is a parallel to that in the, in, you know, normal, what I would say the off air, the off air life as well. But absolutely there are times when, um, when you have to, I mean, I think most of us want to have a reasonably pleasant workplace, but there are always going to be the times where it is not going that way. And, um, you know, you, you have to take a stand, but I think you have to think as strategically as possible about the right way to do that you know is the right I guess I think about it as a version of before I start any interview often the most important question I need to ask myself either outwardly or at some level subconsciously I'm asking myself is how do I want this interview to feel how do I want it to sound what is the tone that this needs to be and I think that's true of of every kind of conversation that is it persuasive is it combative is it um is it that you know a sense of you've you know that you need to draw a line in the sand so whatever the situation i think it's worth just thinking you know what is the tone of this um uh that that i that i want this how do i want this conversation to come across what's that saying i think is it a lot it's used a lot in customer service you know they won't remember what you said but they'll remember how you made them feel how you made them feel exactly how you made them feel so i think that's that's really true it's how do you want to have that i increasingly try and just use humor to try and diffuse these power structures i'll give you two absurd examples um I was on a board for a long time where the chairman kept calling me dear in the meetings. 
in front of he didn't even know he was doing it and I thought I don't know what to do about this I'm it, no one's really noticing it's not a huge thing but it's really winding me up and it's diminutive and it's infuriating and I thought I know I'll just start calling him darling so every time he did it, I started calling him darling. And it took a bit of time. You can see the first time, I was like, what? And then it took a moment. He's not a completely stupid man. So he did actually work out that he was doing something back to me. And you could see, he's like, oh, I was saying that. And I didn't have to even say anything. And I just got a lucky break with that piece of humor. Other times, it's a lot harder, right? So I sit in the House of Lords on the Joint Committee for National Security Strategy, Yep. And uh, <laughs> it's brilliant because it's really interesting with the oversight of the National Security Advisor. It's fascinating, but I am quite unusual looking in that scenario and environment. Uh, and also because I understand a bit about technology and often some of the things I think we're going to face in the future are going to look a lot more like the things I understand than what generals might understand. But So it means I've been speaking in lots of strange places and I was thinking on defence and security and warfare and I was conference the other day and I was speaking about modern deterrence and uh, I sat down and I said to the man next to me I'm quite depressed that I'm the only woman in this room and it was a room not quite as big as this but probably half the size and he looked at me and he said well it's not a very girly subject and I thought I don't really know what to say about that I just don't so all I could say was do you know I really do think that it's going to be a young probably Chinese female software engineer that takes down the UK you are aware of that aren't you and it was sort of funny, but it's not funny on another level. And you can see he was completely flabbergasted. So I think trying to... Def- it's exactly the same point you're making, just diffusing the situation, but reversing the power by making them think about how they're, what they're trying to do yeah. to you. Gosh, yeah. And I, yeah. You had the right thing in the moment, which is, of course, most of us are going to walk away thinking... Realising later what it, it was we could no, have said. I'm getting used to it. I have to come up with these lines ahead of time now. Sorry, I interrupted the questions. Next one. Um, the next one. What could yeah. men do differently? Um, who asked that yes, question? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, let, let's face it, it is still mostly at the moment as we look around that in the senior positions where they're doing the, the, the hiring, it is, you know, often, um, often in the hands of men. And I guess, I, so I would say that it's to just be much more thoughtful about where they look for the next person they, they hire. I mean, I've been, in, I've been in conferences which are about women in business and, you know, powerful men will say, you know, I'd love to promote more women, but they just aren't out there. And actually, you still hear that now. Such I mean, crap. a bit less, but you still hear that. And you just think, how imaginative are you really being in, you know, who you look for to do your job? I mean, Look at my, I didn't come from, I don't know if there is a classic background to, to working on the Today programme, but I came from BBC World, I'd worked on international news, so I didn't come from Radio 4 news programmes. Um, so, you know, you could be much more, just to, to think more more widely about who you see as your successor or your successors, and, and, and to be aware that most people tend to hire in the image of, of themselves and promote in the image of themselves, and to at least have the awareness that that is so often the default position, and therefore to you know, start the process of thinking, you know, I need to be more active, more imaginative about, about you know, the, person I, the person I put directly under me, the person I see as taking over from me, all, all of those kinds of yeah, things. And I do think that in personal relationships too, you know, men just, I've got some incredible male friends who've been so supportive, it's back to that circle of trust. But it's often the case that when people have children that the power balance shifts again and I hope that will change. So I do think thinking about childcare and what will be elderly parent care as well as people get older is as important because it will enable both people to make choices from an equal, you know, equal fundamental at home. So that's another very important bit of it, I think. And then you 
other lady was... Who was the other lady? Yes, about the question about whether women, uh, women and diversity... Sorry, yes, diversity. About whether women count on a diversity... Or, putting, or being put spectrum. in a box of diversity, whether that yeah. does a disservice, is that kind of your question? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I really hope that the skills I've put in my book are actually equally useful to, um, to, to men as well as women, because some of what I'm saying is effectively about presenting yourself, putting yourself forward, the sort of tips and, and tricks that make people more effective communicators, make people more effective in, in the workplace. Um, but I think you can't get away from the fact that, that you know, that there is... There is something that is not properly balanced in society at the moment. And you can look at that in, uh, on lots of different dimensions and across lots of different, um, matrices. But, but I still feel that, you know, when I walk into those really, I mean, you, you do it all the time, but I do it as well. Not so much in this country, but for example, I mean, I walked into one conference in the Middle East last year where I think there were probably, you know, a handful of women in, in, you know, amongst about 200 men. And it's really, okay, I know that's the Middle East. It's, it's, it's not this country, but I think, I, I just feel that this job is not is not done yet, and um, clearly very far from being done. So, um, so I, I just feel that we have to have some, you know, more attention to and I, to that. I would agree with it, and I I hear all the time from men who say, "But we don't want to just promote a woman because she's a woman." I'm like, why not? Because you're going, you know, you say she's able to be promoted, so just promote her. I think there's a real false argument that goes on here that I think we hear a lot about. There are millions and millions of amazing women that have not got the opportunities they deserve. So screw that. If they get them because men feel they have to tick some boxes, that's just fine. I think we need that right now. Let's take three more questions and then Michelle will be signing her book, which I know you're all going to buy. So that's going to be a long queue. Right, the lady at the front in the red jumper. And the man here, yes? A man asked a question that would be excellent. Number two. Yes, number one first, there you go. Um, I guess similar to the uh, practical advice that you needed on how to get authority, what practical advice could you give to how to do the balancing act between a young family and a career? Hello. Um, my question was, um, it's something that's happened to me recently. I sit on an executive board of a majority of women, which is exceptional in my industry, which is real estate. And I found it really interesting, and I wondered what your thoughts might be that we were presenting to the city, Canary Wharf, Barclays Building. There were five of us presenting, and four of us were women, because we happened to be four senior heads and only one male. And my other female colleagues sat in a meeting in preparation and said, I'm really worried we're a bit female heavy. <laughs> and I just sat there and said, I just don't believe men would sit in a similar scenario and worry about it in the same way. I just thought it was nuts, and I just thought it was interesting that I still feel, even having got to an executive board level position, is that there's this still latent concern always about this imposter syndrome that we, we don't deserve to be there. And that was really my question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I hope that that is a moment in, that that's a moment in time, because, um, you know, there, yeah, I mean, 
there's clearly a change underway in your industry is, is, or your company is, um, it, is looking different to what people, to what people expect. On, on imposter syndrome, I mean, I slightly struggle with this because I'm always really keen not to... Part of the reason I wrote the book was I thought, I don't really want a younger generation of women to, to hear a, a, a narrative uh, from women of our age, which is all about how hard it is. Because I think that, you know, that's really... That's that that sense of frustration that I think you know our age does feel. You just have to be careful about how that filters down because you don't want people to think. Well, honestly, what's the point if after twenty years and even getting where they uh, where they have, if they still feel that way, that just doesn't bode well um, for those who are uh, for those who are coming up. So that's why I'm slightly cautious about things like uh, things like imposter syndrome because I'm I just don't want it to end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy but you know I would just say that you know we all have those moments I mean I had it before coming here it's why I wrote, we all have those moments where we think I'm not sure I can do this right and um, but those are for us those are for us to to conquer they're not necessarily for us for us to share um apart from within within the circle of trust so i which guess now is this room which now is yeah <laughs> all, all 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 of us here and everyone listening everyone listening on on the podcast um so yeah i mean i i, I just think that that um yeah hopefully what you're talking about is a moment in time and hopefully in terms of a broader feeling of i'm not sure i should be in this room we just have to get over those moments, however it takes, you know, whether someone else is going to psych you up or whether you're going to do it yourself, just got to, just got to get over it and just do the do, I just think that's on. one of the things that I think has been so positive in the last two, three years. But, you know, there's a lot that's not very uh, net positive about the role of social media. But what I have perceived is that there is an ability to see every kind of voice out there. And I know because I've talked to enough young women who've come from, you know, very different backgrounds to mine or who've had struggles from different ways or, you know, struggling with their sexuality or their weight or whatever it might be, they can find a voice that feels like their voice. And so I think these things are able to be shifted and moved. And I agree with Michelle. I just think it's incredibly important we encourage young women to own the situations they're in and speak and not feel alarmed about the things going on in their head. Um, because the more you do it, of course, the easier the easier it gets. And I think that a lot about uh, about the Today program that, um, that uh, and I this is actually where I started the book that I um, you know I look back on this and I marvel at myself in a bad way, not in a good way. Um, because when when I was first asked if I might be interested in in uh, in going for the job of of uh, at the Today program, you know, my I came home and said to my husband, yeah, you know, I think the Today program, they're going to be looking for a new presenter, but I, you know, I just, it, I don't want to do it. It would be too hard. And I was thinking, of course, of the working hours and the scrutiny and all of the things that are hard. But of course, you know, he said to me, but if one of our children said, I'm not going to go for that because it's going to be too hard, you know, you'd never accept that. And I immediately thought, of course, if one of my children came home and said, I'm not going to do such and such thing because it'd be too hard, you know, I just would never, would never let that go. So, um, and, but I also know that it took me three years to feel comfortable. And I still don't, I still think of it as the kind of job you do sitting on the edge of your seat rather than sitting back. That's the most, that's the, the best, best way I can, I, I can, I can describe it. And picking up the question about a young family. Yes. Um, do you think you've made choices uh, that you regret or that you would like to have done differently? Or do you think you nailed it? I don't mean you nailed it. In a, I know you would never say you nailed it. <laughs> but all I mean is, do you think you got the balance right? I think that what, um, I think that 
I now realize, I mean, I had three children in two years, and I, I think the hardest point was when I went back to work after having my twins. Uh, I really thought... I can second that. <laughs> we both have twins. But uh, so I had one and then I had twins. And I remember thinking uh, when I went back to work after the twins that at that point I was working in international news and a story would break and I might go to Hong Kong or Singapore or, you know, anywhere uh, all, all over the world. And I thought, how on earth am I? I can, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel on work anymore. How am I going to travel on a breaking news story? And what I'm really grateful for is that none of my editors at that time actually said to me, do you think you can, do you think you'll be able to travel on a breaking news story? Because if they'd said that, I would have had to say, no, absolutely not, because I couldn't imagine it. So I, I guess my advice would be that that is, it's a really intense phase and it is a phase and it will pass and then you have the harder times where you go on a business trip and they're old enough to say to you why are you going away which your twins are too young to say on current trajectory I mean I think it's also really important that people like me say I've got a lot of help you know don't look at me and think oh you know how can she do all these jobs and have two twins of two and a half I'm really rich and I have 24 7 seven day a week (laughs) that's the truth like I mean I am so lucky so lucky and I think it's sort of disingenuous to give the impression that that's not the case and I mean it really seriously because I think you make choices and I've made a choice that I want to spend quite a considerable amount of my money enabling them to have care partly because I'm slightly physically challenged myself so don't beat yourself up right I look at my friends and I can say there's the whole spectrum there are people who've taken time to go back to work people haven't gone back to work just think you have to find the pace for you and work out where you want to put your resources it's to get the help celebrity interviews who say no I don't have any help yes. I sort of and you just think really um, there's a big thank you to my nanny in the acknowledgements of the book you know without whom I would definitely not have been able to write it or do do anything I do anything I do thank you for coming <laughs>